I was so young when I was born, my eyes could not yet see. And by the time of my first dawn, somebody holding me, they said, I welcome you to Cracker Box Palace. We've been expecting you. You bring such joy in Cracker Box Palace. No matter where you roam, no, our love is true. Bow, 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 Welcome. Welcome you. I welcome you to Cracker Box Palace. That'd be cool if I called this show Cracker Box Palace. Welcome to Cracker Box Palace. And, and then I somehow got the rights for that to be my opening music. George Harrison's Cracker Box. What a great song. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another exciting and jam-packed. You guessed it, it's a jam-packed. Why do, Why wouldn't we jam-pack the most into these episodes that we possibly can? It's a jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I'm your host. I'm Daniel Lobel. I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Seriously. You could have asked, but uh, I know you care. I know you're out there, and you're thinking, how the hell is that guy doing? Okay. Great show for you today. I'm going to talk to Barry Katz, a legendary, a legendary manager. He's a legendary manager. You know, we had Reese Darby on this show, like, way early on. I always loved that character on Flight of the Concourse. The manager. The manager. It count. Jermaine? Brit? Brit? Are you there? Barry Katz managed Dave Chappelle and... Dane Cook, and I think he worked with Louis C.K. He says he did in the show. So, yeah, he did. Worked with Louis C.K. I think he managed Nick DiPaolo. A lot of great comedians over the years. And now he, I run into him in Starbucks all the time when I'm out in Malibu because uh, I go out there to work with the kids in the rehab. Shout out to Centered Health. If you guys know anybody who's a teen suffering with uh, alcohol or drug abuse or depression, anxiety, go check it out. They take all insurance. That's a free ad for Centered Health. You're welcome, Centered Health. I think it's centeredhealth.com. But if not, Google it. Google it, folks. All right, listen. Listen, this show does not have a sponsor, but in lieu of that, in lieu, who says in lieu? In lieu of that, I want to tell you about something serious. There's a dude in Japan who's a hooded monk who's been following the show for years and he's a good dude he's an artist he even actually painted a mural of me once on the side of a building i believe in okinawa japan where people don't know who i am but if i ever were to show up there and they saw the my face that they recognized from growing up they've seen it so many years on that wall that mural i would probably immediately be worshipped as an emperor because of this man I'm thinking unlimited free sushi. I might just move there. Anyway, unfortunately, his lovely wife is in need of some help because she is not doing well. She has cancer. And her name is, and I hope I say it right, Kaori. It's K-A-O-R-I. And they're raising money. It's a good cause. I know this dude. I know him from him knowing me, but, you know, he's been emailing back and forth with me for years. 
Kaori's Treatment Fund. It's on GoFundMe. Please help us raise money to pay for my wife Kaori's cancer treatment. This is her experience in her words. And these are, these are her words. When I first noticed the lump last year, I guess you could say I was in denial. I didn't think I needed or even deserved any treatment or attention. Then my dad died suddenly on January 7th. He was my only family. That made me realize that I needed to take care of my health for my children's sake. Without telling my children, I made a doctor's appointment and had an exam. When I got the diagnosis of stage 3 breast cancer, I felt scared and alone. I didn't want to tell my children because I didn't want them to worry. Well, I told um, Kevin, who is Gomyo, uh, the hooded monk, he said, don't worry, let's get through this together. I got laid off from a company I'd worked at for 10 years in 2017. I also told him I worried about how expensive the cancer treatment would be. He said, don't worry about that either. I know this guy, Lobel. He said I, he can handle it himself. He told me about GoFundMe, and I thought no one would donate. And after a few days, many donations have I've come in. I realized I was wrong, and I wasn't alone. Kaori. I'm saying that right. Anyway, go on GoFundMe and type in K-A-O-R-I-S, Kaori's Treatment Fund. All right, apostrophe S. Uh, they're at $4,801 out of the $25,000 they need as of me reading this ad. Let's get them to that $25,000. Help her beat this cancer. Or you go to GoFundMe.com forward slash Kaori's dash treatment dash fund. Or you could just send money on PayPal to them. You PayPal Ruly Blue Baby, which is R-U-L-Y-B-L-U-E. B-A-B-Y at hotmail.com. People need help out there, and if you're in a position where you can help, you know, that's that's something you should do. Especially, you know, because you'd want, hopefully, to live in a world where people help each other. I don't know. I don't even especially. You know that that's what you should do. Okay, it's good karmically. It's good spiritually. It's uh, It's a good thing to do. Gomyo wrote me, the Japanese healthcare system covers 70% of the treatment, but the remaining 30% is breaking us. We have gotten many generous donations, but we still have to sell Carrie's car to keep up with the hospital bills. Come on, guys. Help out. I did, and I will again. And I'm hopefully helping out even more with this. I'm doing what I can. Do what you can. Be a good person. Be a good listener. Don't donate to the show this time. Okay? What If you're going to donate to the show... Send the donation to these guys. All right. So there it is. Barry Katz. Barry Katz. The man I see at Starbucks. He's a funny dude. He's a character. He's one of these guys who interviews himself throughout the interview. Like he he asks this, did I want to do that? Yes. Did I want to do that other thing? No. Should I have done that other thing? Maybe. Uh, am I asking myself a lot of questions in the middle of this interview? Yes. Uh, is this uh, typical of people who come on the show? No. Is it an interesting quirk that uh, Daniel LaBelle is going to really like? Yes. Yes, I do. I find it uh, quite endearing. I like the man. He's a charming guy. I mean, he's in the business of being charming, but I mentioned it on the show. He's one of these people who, in Hebrew... You would say he's very good at Lashon Tov, good speech. You know, it's very important. You have Lashon Tov and you have Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara is evil speech. 
Somebody goes around slandering everybody. This guy does the opposite. He goes around praising everybody. And to me, if I had to break it down and say, why is this dude so successful? Or why has he had so much continued success? It's because he knows how to speak well of others. And he does it in a unique way. And you'll hear it in this episode. Okay. Without further ado, except of course for the intro song, my talk with the legendary manager, Barry Ketz. Here he is. Enjoy. When Daniel LaBelle was in school, he didn't pay any attention. He's older and wiser, he's learning philosophy with his comedian hench people. Each of whom is a wonderful sage in their own right as well. It's modern day philosophers. And now here's Daniel LaBelle. I apologize to the listeners. There's a gardener outside, which happens once a month, and uh, it's the next door neighbor, and can't control the timing on that. Just <laughs> unlucky on that. That's okay. Gardening is 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 good. Gardening and comedy. Gardening. I get so angry when when I don't hear like crisp, clean audio because I've been in audio for so long. So if there's anything like, it bought, but I'm building a studio which is going to have like pristine sound and be open in a month. So eventually, you know, uh, our podcast will outlast the lawnmower. Right. Yeah. Hopefully sooner than later. But I'm I'm here with a legend, and I don't say that lightly of the comedy business, a name that uh, when I got into comedy 15 years ago was already like, you know, Barry Katz. You hear about Barry Katz, like a big deal. And uh, I started in a comedy club that you started. I started in a comedy club that you started, which was the Boston Comedy Club in New York. I just uh, was looking through an old box and I found some signatures of some of the nights. And one of the nights was like Ed Helms and, uh, you know, Chappelle and um, just Chris Rock. And it's crazy, like, to see all the people who came through there and were working for $6 in a bucket of chicken. And, and you were, at the time... Just also pretty much working for $6 and a bucket of chicken, I assume, right? Yeah, I was just, I mean, I think the club, first of all, before I get started, I just want to say that I'm really grateful that you had me here. And it was really wonderful, you know, when you come to a podcast and you meet, you know, members of the person's family, their wife, their dogs, you're in their house. It's a really, it's a really special thing. And then also when you say, legend i'm not being disingenuous when i say this i and we'll talk about it later like i don't i've never thought of myself in that way at all not even like remotely like i'm looking on the floor at like a crumb down there and i'm thinking okay maybe i could be you know a big crumb on that floor someday but but i'll go back to the club and then we'll talk about that later I mean, because i just i just when somebody says that it's just it's so weird to hear but I want to pause you there because actually this is one of the reasons why I was so excited to have you on the podcast. And uh, I listen to your podcast. I've been listening on and off for years. I really enjoy it. I listened to your podcast the last episode. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, And uh, one thing I learned from you is how to be gracious to other people. I think I had some of that to begin with, but 
listening to you helped me amplify it. Um, I listen to the way you talk to people. You have such tremendous respect for people and you make everybody feel so good who you talk to, like you just did for me right now. Just, just mentioning, you know, you coming in and the warmth and the family. And then you have this great humility about you that you don't need to have. <laughs> and it's, it's very charming and it's, uh, and it's such a great quality. And listening to your podcast over the years, I've always taken note of that. I go, this guy knows how to make people feel good. And that is such a great quality to have. And it's weird. Like, I don't, you know, when you analyze that sentence, which is something that's a common way to phrase something, this guy knows how to make people feel good. That sentence indicates that you're making an effort, that you're really consciously trying to figure out how to make, okay, we're going over to the boss's house for dinner tonight. Okay, make sure we make a good impression and everything's great. And there's a conscious effort for that. And for me, uh, when you bring it up, it I don't even think about it. It's just something that happens. And, and I don't really know where it came from. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know my mother always wanted to make a, a good impression with people and she always tried to um, have a perception out there that might not have been reality. Um, what do you mean by that? Like my mother always, you know, wore the nicest dresses, always, never left the house unless she was all put together with jewelry and everything. And and so that when she went out, people thought that she might have been part of high society. Uh-huh. When in turn, we lived in the smallest house in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, uh, maybe a thousand square foot house. But as my mother always told me, better to own a tiny little shack in Beverly Hills than um, own a mansion in the middle of the Woolsey fires. So, um, you know, or a mansion in a bad neighborhood. I'm glad you survived those fires, by the way. I'm glad I survived too. So my mother was the kind of person, though, that I think were, you know, it's weird. I'm thinking about this for the first time as you're asking me in decades But I remember that my mother used to love to go to the flea markets in western Massachusetts and she'd take me there on Saturdays and Sundays. And if you've ever been to any kind of flea market, uh, we all love markets. Uh, We all love to pick up something that has a price tag of, you know, $20 on and look at the person and say, can you do any better? Right. You know, it's just this thing that's kind of fun to do. It's like a microcosm of life, right? We're always like going around looking for deals in life. And here it's all like controlled in one place. Like there could be something exciting. I might actually do well. And you can always find something interesting. If, you know, there's a lot of people that don't like used uh, clothing and used uh, uh, items. I happen to love it because uh, my mother taught me that everything has a story. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and you might not know what the story is, but you take that energy wherever that thing was, and now it, it's, it's, it's with you. And sometime in the future, it's going to be with somebody else. And so... Is that how you approach management? And <laughs> hopefully not the second part of it being with somebody else. But, but when, you, when you pick up a new client, 
Are you attracted to that backstory that you're now is now in your hands? I love uh, the backstory of anybody. It's the it's the journey that's the the greatest um, to me gift as a manager because you're meeting somebody. Let's say you meet Dave Chappelle and he's 17, and his story is well, his parents are divorced. He's living in D.C. He's been doing comedy since he was 14, pr- presumably to alleviate some of the pain and take more control back in his life, but maybe not knowing it. And um, and seeing a kid who's 17 who has the material of a 40-year-old. Mm-hmm. And so that's if, like a great flea market find. Yeah. Yeah. And so if there's a 40 year old doing the same material, you're not as excited as somebody who's 17. Mm-hmm. Look, my son is 14 now and he's probably in his room 10 hours a day producing music. Um, I tell him all the time, I say, look at just listen to something you did. A year ago, listen to something you did six months ago, and listen to what you're doing now. You just had a you just had an artist just send you money and tell you he's going to have you produce four tracks on his album. You just got paid for something. You're 14. Yeah. Now you're not Jay Z, but you've already put in probably two thousand hours. Mm-hmm. into doing this there's it would be you'd have to be like functionally out of it to when you're 18 not to be extraordinarily great i mean you'd have to really blow it mm-hmm. you know go on drugs or be self-destructive or do something and so again with Chappelle, that was his story and then the flea markets what i learned from my mom was also, if you think about flea markets and the people that run those booths, it's very rare that you get an energy around the people there where everything's okay. You get a sense that these people are living check to check. It's a tough existence. And every flea market, it's like you live or die on it, whether it's gonna be a good day or a bad day. They get up really early. They bring all their stuff out. And my mother used to walk around there in, you know, the nice dress and the coiffed hair and the jewelry. And she loved those people. She used to hang with those people. And I think the last time I saw you, one of the things I alluded to, what I love so much about Starbucks, it's not the food, it's not the coffee, it's not the tea. It's the fact that Starbucks is a place where it's a congregation of the wealthiest and the poorest and everywhere in between. And you're sitting down and you're there's a homeless person next to you. And then there's Caitlyn Jenner on the other side. Mm-hmm. Hopefully not homeless now after yeah. the Wesley fires in Malibu. I think she made it. Yeah. And there's a you know a banker somewhere else, a real estate agent, an actor. Mm-hmm. And... I think that's what I love about that. And I think the humility comes from the fact that I saw how my mother engaged with these people and she never treated them like 
anything different than, you know, everybody's all human beings, but she did like walking in there and being kind of the bell of the ball. And, um, mm-hmm. and so, uh, I'm more dressed like, uh, the homeless person, but so I, I hope that, that answers your question. Do you think you dress that way in response to the way your mother would dress? Is it like, uh, if my mother saw me dressed like this, she would like, she wouldn't let me go out to, uh, it, it's it's like a retaliation against your upbringing. No, I like I I do like dressing up. I think what's happened recently, the way the world is working, um, and for your audience, it's the the business is is really changing. Uh, not just the business, but the way business is done, the way people dress, the way people. Um, present themselves um, where, you know, writers come into meetings to pitch shows with flip-flops on. And, um, and yes, yeah, some producers and networks hate that. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, is that if it's a great idea, they're not going to not buy it because the guy has flip-flops on. <laughs> and so there's a casualness about how things are. There's a way to do business now, which is, it's it's insanity that like it it used to be like your office was like tied to like like if you weren't in this group of people and in that place and this guy's down the hall and mm-hmm. then you weren't doing business the right way and now it's like crazy you could be in palace verdes or you could be with Virgin Gorda or you could be Jamaica. You could be anywhere. And it's incredible what can happen through FaceTime and through all these different things and and the computer and obviously what's happened in the past 10 years with documents and how you can change documents and do contracts. And if you want to go to a Starbucks for two hours during lunch and do work, you can do it, and it's like your phone has become. And when I think about the past twenty years, Danny, um, and I sound like I'm some kind of dinosaur. I can't even believe when I'm I'm telling you this, but I, I'm I'm going to share this with you. This is really this blows me away. So there's a lot of stories that I have, and I don't want to get into all of them. But I got a four year deal at Disney. 24 years ago after I did this unique thing in Montreal where I was disappointed that I didn't get anybody in. So I created my own new faces. I actually, I actually created new faces. Um, uh, I brought 18 comedians up. I took over the comedy nest. Mm -hmm. I invited 250 industry people who came I got six development deals. There were no other development deals at the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival that year. And I had people like Chappelle and Tracy Morgan and Daryl Hammond, Jim Brewer, all these people up there. And Disney gave me a four-year executive producer deal. I was, I literally, I I got to LA. I, I hired a lawyer, Jim Carrey's lawyer, to do my deal. She called me with a deal. I was like, I, 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 I cannot believe this. This isn't insane. Mm-hmm. She says, yeah, your new offices, you want to report your new offices tomorrow. Um, I go to the building across from the lot of Disney. I'm on the penthouse floor 
uh, I have like like 2,000 square feet of office space. Yeah. I have a corner office that's with glass all around. I have a salary for two different employees. I sit down and I'm like blown away by this. And I put my feet on top of the desk and no one's around. And I just open up the front drawer and I notice there's some headshots in there. Uh -huh. And I like, it's like a hundred headshots and I pull them out and they're all Sinbad signed headshots. <laughs> so in other words, Sinbad had the, him and his brother had the whole penthouse, I guess, when they were doing their Disney run. Yeah. And I was like blown away. And I never forget this. I, there's so many layers to the story. I look down and there's like one of those little corner um, places where they sell like 10 cars and there's a black Ferrari that's like a Knight Rider Ferrari. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, you know, I just got all this stuff happening here. Let me go down and see what the Ferrari is. Mm -hmm. I go down. It has a price tag on it, $24,999. The guy says, I'll finance it for me for four years for like $350 a month or something. I never, you know, it'd be nice to have a Ferrari. Yeah. It's a 1980 Ferrari. This is like 1995 when I'm, so I get the Ferrari. Uh-huh. That night I drive it to the laugh factory. Because again, I guess I thought perception was reality because of my mom. Right. I pull up, Jay Moore is there, a client of mine, and... I get out of the car and I'm about to give the key to the valet and literally he just grabs the keys and he's like, get the fuck out of here and jumps in the car and just drives off. And I don't see him again the rest of the night. Uh -huh. My car is gone. And, but, but, the, but the point I'm trying to make is when I went to Montreal and did all this stuff, it was a thing where, you know, I, I had people saying no to me mm -hmm. and Again, having humility, you have to have humility and you have to treat people right. But then when you perceive that you've been sort of discounted, you have to figure out a way to get what you want without um, hurting people. What I did was I did something very unusual. I went to them and I said, listen, I didn't get anybody in. Would you mind if I brought some comedians up to a club? And they said yes, because they didn't think that I could ever do anything like I did. I put ads in Variety, Hollywood Reporter. I was faxing, because back then, we were talking about the technology and how it is and how I didn't have anything. I was faxing all through the night to every executive invitations. I didn't have email. I didn't have anything. I didn't even have a computer. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to operate a computer until I got to Disney. Right. And I remember I hired Gary Mann, who many people know is a great executive at Comedy Central, and I don't know exactly where he is now. But at the time, he had been working at Star Search. And, he would, and, and I thought, you know, I have the salary that normally would go to an assistant, but I love Gary Mann. Why don't I just give him the money? Mm -hmm. I can always find people to assist me. And, and he'll come in and actually Gary Mann taught me how to use a computer in 1995. But when you really think about it in 24 years, which I don't think is a lot of time, we, 
you know, went from that, from just getting computers to getting laptops. Then we used to have beepers. Chappelle, Chappelle and I had beepers. It's, it's, it's just, it's just a whole new world. And I think that's, that's, that helps artists and it helps the freedom. So when I, getting back to five minutes ago, when you talk about how I was dressed or what, it's like you don't have to worry about having 16 business suits. Okay, I got to meet right. this guy and do that and, and however it is. Yes, I you have pitch meetings. I've had a plethora of pitch meetings over the last couple of months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to go in. You don't want to go in with ripped jeans and whatever. I don't want to go in with flip-flops to the pitch meeting because I don't want to be in a situation where my artist doesn't get a deal and he says, hey, the reason why we didn't get the deal was because of the flip-flops. Right, right. And one other thing I want to share about the business and, and how it is, and I, I always thought about this, and again, you've jogged my memory about a lot of things. One of the things that's important for artists out there listening is when you are thinking about who it is who you want to represent you, think about the greatest meeting that you could ever have in your life. Let's just pretend it's one of the following people. You we, um, you want to meet with um, Jason Blum at Blumhouse, or you want to meet with Steven Spielberg. You want to meet with Patty Jenkins about a, a project that she might be doing. Which representative, who would you want sitting next to you at that meeting? Who would you want to help prepare you for that meeting and who would you want there who could set you up properly tell the story in the beginning that's the warm-up that will help Mm -hmm. get you to where you need to be and set you up to where you're going to knock down all the pins and when you're choosing people that's i think that's one of the important things that you should do now i've always been blown away that people chose me to do that because i am kind of a um, a different kind of entity. Like I'm not your normal person when you sit across from me that you would think you would want sitting next to you. But why, why do you say that? Because I think I'm, I think I'm a maverick. I think I'm, I do things very differently than other people. Well, you described that with the just for laugh story. Where does this come from? This is an odd thing as well because I look at you and I'm honest when I tell you this. I have no fucking idea. My mother was a simple woman who worked in a dress shop her whole life working for minimum wage or maybe a, a buck extra and and going to the flea markets. We lived in a small house. She never had any dreams, goals, or aspirations of a bigger life. She was content with that life. Uh, my dad died when uh, I was four. She never remarried. And my sister as well never had aspirations of a huge life. Um, She didn't finish high school. She worked jobs that were not like jobs that were big jobs. And she never had aspirations of doing big things. So I don't really understand where it came from. I I really don't. I don't. I don't even know the genesis of how... It happened. I, I, I think, I think I know. Um, when I started doing stand-up comedy in Boston, a guy named Chance Langton, a great comedian there, saw me. What year was this? This was 1980. 
And he said, do you want to be the doorman at my comedy club? I'll give you $10 a night and I'll put you on at five minutes of two after four headliners right before the end of the show. I said, fine, because I, uh, instinctually, uh, I always believed something. And, and it was always really great interviewing people and hearing them say things that you thought to yourself many years ago. Like when I interviewed Larry King, one thing he said that really hit me, and it didn't hit me because it was new to me. It hit me because that's how I went about life, mm-hmm. not knowing how it was channeling through me. And Larry's advice to anybody is just figure out what you want to do and just get in there. Clean toilets, sweep the floor, get coffee. Somebody will get sick. Somebody will get <laughs> fired. Somebody won't show up. And the way Larry said it, I love the way he said it. And when you're in, you're in. <laughs> and and so my philosophy was when he offered me that job, $10, I don't care if I pay him $10. I don't mm-hmm. care what the money is. I'm in an apartment that's $200 a month, free hot water, electricity, uh, you know, it's like, I don't care. I'm going to figure out a way. I, I don't care. If I, had, I lived on Kraft macaroni and cheese, five for a dollar. That was my morning, noon, and dinner every night for years. And I had ketchup, tomato sauce, and butter and cheese. Mm-hmm. And I'd mix and match because I didn't care. I wanted to find the affiliation. So when he offered me that job, in my mind... I thought to myself, anything can happen. And sure enough, he got fired. And the owner came to me, saw how I was working, even though I was a teenager Mm -hmm. in college. And he said, listen, I want you to take over the club. You're going to book it. And, um, you know, I'll I'll give you this amount of money a week. And I was like, cash. I was like, wow. And, and. And he saw my work ethic. He saw what I was doing. I used to get there early, stay late. And I took pride in my work. And he was a crazy person, but I I loved him. His name was Tom Maloney. This was a club called Play It Again Sam's in Alston, Massachusetts. It was the first movie bar. This is before video and DVD. So he would have Mm -hmm. whatever went to video or now what you get on your television. Right. Used to go there and he used to have drinks and everything. Oh, Downstairs cool. was the comedy club. Upstairs was a musician playing at the bar and a restaurant. And it was the hangout for the comedians. I made it the hangout. Sounds like and a was, fun place. It was great. And so I think what happened when I took over, then I did such a great job taking over. And he hated the comedian so much. He said, listen, I don't even want to just take the door. I'll take the bar and the food. Mm-hmm and make it work. I want to give you some incentive. And back then I had this kind of relationship with him, which I would never advise anybody to say. I said, Tom, what are you doing? You're, you're paying me a salary. You could you get the whole door. He said, I don't like comedians. Don't like anything about those what a people. character. Okay. I said, why don't you like them? He said, I like movies better. <laughs> I said, why do you like movies better? Yeah. He said, I hope I remember this. He said, uh, he said, they don't show up late. They don't disrespect me. 
and they don't ask me for a raise. <laughs> you take the comedy. Mm-hmm. And I took it over, and it was a cash business. And so the first thing that I did, I took a risk. I called the biggest comedian in Boston that was like, in other words, it would be like, it would be like calling Chappelle. Lenny Clark? Lenny Clark. Yeah. And wow, I, call, that was, I guess that. Uh, amazing. And yeah. I called Lenny Clark, who you guys might recognize from Rescue Me or long ago, the Larroquette show. And I said, Lenny, um, I have this comedy club I just took over, um, and I want you to be my Saturday night guy. And he laughed at me, like, just shitting all over me. He's like, Barry. You don't understand. I make $500 every Saturday night. Uh-huh. You're in a basement. You can't afford me. <laughs> and I paused and I said, Lenny, I'll give you $1,000 every Saturday night. Come do my club. And there was silence on the other end of the phone. He said, listen, my brother books this other club on Saturdays. I, I can't, I can't leave him, but... I, I'll do yours every other Saturday. Wow. And so then I had the biggest guy in my shitty little cl- club. And in then the everybody under him will do it once and you have him. And then you get him, you get everybody. Smart. So then I got Goldthwaite and mm-hmm. Dennis Leary and Dana Gould and wow. Paula Poundstone and Jonathan Katz and Anthony Clark from Yesteryear. You were the king of Boston at that point. Well, then I started, then I realized wow, there's places all around New England that don't have comedy. I, if I just got in my car and just traveled around and looked at places, I could uh-huh. convince them to do comedy. Yeah. And so I went around and I started selling like 10 weeks of shows at $500 a show to these uh, satellite places, bowling alleys, you know, cafes, uh, restaurants, and... I had like over 50 one-nighters all over New England at the time, and and that's when I started realizing the entrepreneurial spirit of it all. Do you think you learned your entrepreneurial spirit from watching your mom negotiate at these flea markets? It could be, but I I just I don't really know. I'm I I I'm embarrassed to say that you asked me the question, and I don't know how. You become the person to, look, I was doing this stuff in Boston, and I got married. um, I was 26, 25 or 26, and my wife died after eight months. She had uh, anorexia. She developed anorexia, and she couldn't fight it. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's thank you. That's a long time ago. And so fate is a very strange thing, and I, I... I'm blown away by fate, not just tragic fate, but positive fate and how it all works. Look, um, no one wants anybody to die in their life. No one wants any tragedy to happen. Mm -hmm. But if my wife hadn't passed away, I wouldn't be sitting across from you right now. Right. Because I was just doing this contained Boston comedy thing. And I was very happy doing it. And then she passed away and everywhere I went, 
there'd be the negative positive person or the positive negative person. And let me explain because it's the rarest of the rare. Mm -hmm. That's the person you run into at the diner, let's say, that's like, they keep coming back. Hey, how you doing? Everything good? You like the mashed potatoes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really have a great Christmas. Everything's good. And, you know, but by the seventh time, it's like, Okay, I hope this person doesn't come back to this table. Uh And when somebody, uh, a tragedy happens in your life, a lot of people that you know become positive, negative people. They're not trying to be. They don't even realize that they are. But everywhere you go, you go to a club, somebody comes up to you, they hug you tight, they say, Mm -hmm. Barry, are you okay? Is there anything I can do for you? And which is a wonderful thing, but it's the reminder. And so I couldn't even leave the house and go to anywhere I wanted to go because there was always somebody coming to hug me or shake my hand or tell me they love me. And and so I had this business there and people working there. Mm-hmm. And one day I just woke up and I left a note for everybody and I got in my car and I drove to New York City, uh, and I got off at the 79th Street Boat Basin exit. Mm-hmm. I made the left-hand turn. I drove as far as I could go, and I hit um, Amsterdam and around 72nd Street or something. I parked my car, walked into a cafe. There was a bar around it and a payphone. So I I look at the payphone. There's a yellow page just hanging underneath it like there always was. Mm-hmm. This is 1986, and I look under uh, real estate people. I call three real estate agents for apartments. One of them, I give them the number on the payphone. One of them calls back. First apartment I look at is, I think, uh, 1182nd Street, 82nd and West End, where the Central Park is. I'm sorry. 82nd and Central Park West. Mm -hmm. And I look at the apartment. It's a studio apartment with a loft, $935 a month. I said, I'll take it. Yeah. I give them $2,700 or $2,805. And when you're in, you're in. You're in. I'm in New York (laughs) City. I don't know what I'm doing. I have no furniture. I have no business. I have no office. I have no club. All I know is I've decided I'm starting a new life. And my mother always told me, as Frank Sinatra would say, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Uh And then when I talked to her, she said, okay, well, if you want an office, you got to find something at 57th and Broadway. I said, why 57th and Broadway? She said, "It's it's a prestigious address. You want to have a good perception of where you are, find something there, find something small. Mm-hmm. but prestigious. I had an office on 47th and Broadway. First off, and I'll, on, as a quick segue, just uh, it's funny because you brought up uh, Larry King's advice. Larry King, when I interviewed Larry King, he gave me a piece of advice that also changed my life. I asked him about interviewing. And I used to be really insecure when I would interview famous people and I, I would always be scared you know, inside that I'm going to sound like an idiot. And I said, you know, Larry, what a, you ever in an interview and 
somebody says like a word you don't know or something, or they're talking about something and it goes over your head, what do you do? And he said, be honest. (laughs) Just be honest. Just call attention to it. Just say, I don't know what you're saying. People will always forgive you for honesty. And it changed everything for me. From that moment on, every interview I did was better. Wow. And I, and I, I apply that as great life advice too. Like, I'm always just honest with people. If you don't like it, too bad. I'm being honest. I always say I only get paid for one thing, my opinion. It's all I yeah. only get paid for. And so um, so getting back to the story, so, yeah. so I, I, I go to 57th and Broadway. I walk down there. I see the Hard Rock Cafe. I yeah. have lunch there. And I notice as I'm walking out, there's a sign that says Spotlight Entertainment. Mm-hmm. A spotlight entertainment at the time was the greatest agency for comedians in the country. They represented Leno and just everybody. And I just went up in the elevator at the front desk. I said, can I see the president of the company? Uh-huh. And they sat down with me. And I said, I don't know what I want to do, but I want to be here. And they said, well, do you want to be an agent? I said, well, uh, not really. I want to be a manager. Why? Why manager over an agent? Because I felt like I'd have more control. An agent, you know, it feels like they're working under a group of people uh, for like this common company goal where a manager, mm-hmm. you could be more independent on your own. Or you could be part of a big company. You could do whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. And you could produce. Right. Agents can't produce. And so uh, they said, listen, we like you. Um, why don't you just rent an office here? And they showed me an office right between the president and the vice president in the middle. Like it was like an assistant's office that was like maybe literally four and a half feet wide by maybe seven feet long. Just enough to have a small, just enough to have a small table, a chair for me, and a chair on the side for somebody else in this big mm-hmm. window looking down Broadway and 57th Street. And I said, oh, how much do you want for that? And they said, uh, $600. I said, $600? This is crazy. I mean, and Bob Williams, who was the president, he had this raspy voice. He said, kid, take it or leave it. Uh-huh. And I thought to myself, okay, that's an extra, what, $3,600 a year to spend to me that was a lot of money but going back to the ten dollars at the door i thought to myself i'm not here in the beginning to make money i'm here to make my mark Mm -hmm. and i will make that money i will figure out a way to make that money and i will set goals for myself and i'll make it happen and so i took the office again first last and security that was 1800 and they set me all up and I did a lot of deals with them for things and helped bring things to them. So it paid for itself. Yeah. And now I wanted to find a comedy club. And Eddie Brill, who uh, many people know, who used to be the warm-up for Letterman for many years. And he was running a, a little club in Greenwich Village next to Il Molino in the firehouse where Anderson Cooper lives now mm-hmm. on West 3rd between Thompson and Sullivan down from the Blue Note and around the corner from the Comedy Cellar and around the other corner from the famous Village Gate on Bleecker. And uh, I 
I saw Eddie and he said, listen, I'm going to California. If you want to take it over, you can take it over. I said, I can just take it over. He said, yeah, just go down to the club. I go down to the club and the owner of the club tells me that Rick Messina mm-hmm. has taken over the club. Now, Rick Messina, for those of you who don't know, is the manager of Tim Allen and Drew Carey. And, but at the time he was a guy who was booking things with another guy named Tony Camacho Mm -hmm. and who's also a manager now. And so I was like so frustrated because I, they gave the club to him. So I called Rick. I said, listen, if you ever get tired of doing the club, let me know. And I would call him every week. Mm -hmm. And by the sixth week, he was like, Barry, just take the club. Just make a deal with the owner. I can't take it anymore. Nothing's happening here. Right. Just, you know, pay me for the sound system. And and so I met with the owners and I convinced them that I should do it. They didn't know me and that I wanted to call it the Boston Comedy Club. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time renovating it, put it together. And um, my first weekend of shows, the guy who was helping me, put the wires and the lights up before the show and set it up was an 18 year old redheaded kid. It was my first client ever, Louis CK. <laughs> and he was the first one on stage there at the club that you used to work at. Wow. Yeah. That club was a magical place. I'm sad it's not there anymore. I used to call it Anne Frank's comedy attic. I had so many great moments there. One night your, your old former client, Dave Chappelle came in and you decided he was going to host the show that I was on. And immediately the place was like packed because all you got to do is just go outside and somebody says, Chappelle's inside and the place, you know, fills up. And uh, it's just crazy. That's the thing. And I don't want to interrupt your story. So don't yeah. lose your place. This is what was crazy back then. You're, you're in, you're on a street in Greenwich Village that literally, if you looked on a satellite map, you, you wouldn't even know where this place was. Mm-hmm. People are walking by. It's NYU. Washington Square Park is a block away. Sixth Avenue, maybe two blocks away. And and Chappelle, no one, no one knew Chappelle like a national per. There's, but in that area in Greenwich Village, he became legendary as a young kid, even though he wasn't technically hugely famous at all he hadn't done hardly anything wow so he was like regionally famous in that just you know people loved him because they would see him there by this point he was very famous this is post Chappelle show okay got it oh it was yeah but um so you know they say Chappelle's inside the whole place is packed and he brought us on there were five of us on the show that night and you know I looked Look up, still look up to Dave Chappelle. He's one of the greats of all time, and I really wanted to impress him, but uh, I was I was a rookie, and I didn't uh, I didn't have the chops and to do what I wanted to do. I wanted to just throw it all away and just seem like a genius, <laughs> you know. It's a stupid move. I could have just gone up there and did my thing. I would have done fine, but I was like, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna blow them all away. So I went up and. The crowd was mostly a black crowd, and Dave had just done a whole thing about being black, and I thought, let me go up there, and I I opened by saying, I said, here's what I hate about black people, and the place erupts into laughter, and I'm like, I got him, and then I went into some other 
new kind of like idea, experimental thing I was going to do. And I just tanked and I bombed Barry like I never bombed ever in my life. I mean, this is like one of the worst. Every second felt like a minute, you know? I, I started sweating. I remember like sweat pouring down my back. I was like, when is this going to be over? When am I going to? I tried everything I could to try and get out of it. I couldn't get out of it. And I was mortified. Like there's Dave Chappelle, like watching me just eat it. This is the only time he's ever seen me perform. I, I wanted more than anything to impress him. And I just, I just ate it so bad. It was embarrassing. And I got off stage and I just like wanted to kill myself. And Dave gets on and he goes, he goes, here's what I hate about black people is cosmically funny. He goes, for a white guy in front of this audience to come up and I'm just thinking, here's what I hate about black people, the, the balls to do that. And the, this guy is funny. And like he knew what that meant to me, you know? He knew wow. like that I wanted to bury my head in the sand and, and how important it is to perform in front of Dave Chappelle. And the fact that he focused on the one thing I did that killed and he talked about it for like two, three minutes before getting back into his thing. I was like, what a great guy. And I always remember that. What an incredible gift to give me because he he knew what he meant. I think that's one of the things I love so much about working with him and why I was so drawn to him is because he shared my philosophy of always make everyone feel better than you feel yourself Mm -hmm. and never walk out of the house and take your energy, your bad energy and deliver it to somebody else. Leave your energy at the house if it's bad and put your best foot forward and, and, and bring people the light. Don't bring them the darkness. And many times in our lives and, you know, everybody listening, whatever career you're in, one of the most shocking things you find sometimes is when you run into that person that's just like the darkness. And no matter what they do, they they try so hard to be the light. Then there's that thing that they say or that thing that they do. or And, it, and it's over and over again. And you could bring it to their attention a thousand times. And then they still do it and you bring it up and they're like, I, yeah, I guess I did do that. Mm-hmm. And these are the life lessons, I guess, that we have because we run into so many different people and we never know. We are always going to have to deal with dark people. There's always, but then something shock us and we don't know why people keep getting hired who are dark. And like, I think if I never like to say anything that I wouldn't say if somebody weren't sitting here. So I would say this if she was sitting here. So like if Roseanne was sitting here at the table with us and I asked Roseanne, you you know, if there's a graph and on one side of the graph is the most positive, loving, um, gentle, warm person who always treats people in a wonderful state and then there's the people on the other side of the graph that are the exact opposite of that and where do you fall in the middle 
she's not going to say she's the zero on the other side. Mm-hmm. She may not say that she's the person on the full other side. Mm-hmm. But chances are she'll say, you know, I'm difficult. I want what I want. And I've made some mistakes. And yes, I'm probably in the second half of what that graph is. The darker side. The darker right. side. But she always kept succeeding. But as they say in homicide, sooner or later, they all fuck up. <laughs> okay. And so with our profession, there's only so long mm-hmm. that you can go with your talent and eventually look. Kevin Spacey is a genius. I mean, no one can look at any performance that he's done and not think that he is a brilliant person. I'm talking about his craft. But apparently there were a lot of people that saw a different side of him. And that side of him was the darkness. Yeah. That didn't mean that he wasn't a great artist. But he wasn't easy to work with. And and we all know people like that. And sometimes you can keep it hidden for a long time. And you can be working on a writing staff. And, you know, there's talk show hosts. What are they like during the day and night? There's probably 10, 12 talk show hosts. Now, I could, ra- I could tell you which ones are the most difficult and the mo- ones that are the easiest. I'm not going to do that right now. But talk show hosts can oftentimes survive the darkness because their world is self-contained in that show and people can get fired and taken out left and right and nobody really hears or knows anything. And the public sees them every day with that smile on their face and doing their thing and they don't, they don't know the behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. But when you're a juggernaut and a show is going, it's very hard to take somebody out who has their name on the show. Right. Very hard to take somebody out who has their name on the show. And that's the most difficult thing. So you can survive being a harder, difficult, darker person than those worlds. But on sitcoms, you can't. And movie sets, because there's a lot more people who are sharing the limelight with you. And so, you know, you, you know, you've always tried to be the light. The reason why I'm here is because you're the light. And, um, now, that doesn't mean you don't have some darkness. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you don't think certain things about certain people and you're like, why the fuck is that happening? Or why did, how did that guy get that and I'm not doing that? And look, but for the most part, you have a beautiful life. I mean, I met your, I met your wife. You have, I'm going to, share something with you and your audience that I, I think is valuable. Uh, and, it, and it describes you and your life and maybe some of the audience out there. Um, when I got into Boston University, I'd only been in classes that were in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. There were like a hundred, you know, maybe 30 people a class, 20 people a class. My first class at BU, I, you know, have my mimeographed uh, direction sheet. You know, there's no... There's no navigation. You just <laughs> smell in the sheet. Okay, this is where I go. 600 Commonwealth Avenue. Okay, let me find this place. I get there. It's like a huge auditorium. Morse Auditorium. I'll never forget it. And I get there early and I'm like, go inside. It's like a theater. It's like 1,500 people. There's a stage. It's like, 
I've never even seen a place this big. I've never. And people start walking in. It's like the birds, you know, people are like filing in. Kids are like, it's like thousands of people are coming in there. I put my jacket on the seat. I'm just observing everything and then finally sit down. Sociology class. And I'm waiting and all of a sudden this guy walks out. He looks like a combination of Burl Ives from the, and the claymation character from the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer thing. Mm -hmm. And Bernie Brillstein, if you remember what he used to look like, the great manager. Mm -hmm. And he's looking around and he, you know, you can tell he's like limping around and he finds like this lavalier mic and he picks it up and you know, you pick it up, it's like crackling noise and you mm -hmm. can hear him like off the side of the dirty, rotten world, <laughs> this fucking, fucking university and the fucking audio suck of motherfucker. Uh, uh, yeah. <clears throat> testing one too can you hear me and they, you feel like like and before anything he just says can anyone tell me the two things that make a human being happy satisfied fulfilled and complete people are like shaking and uh -huh. raising their hands they're yelling out things no god damn okay no that's not it People write it, not kidding. Uh -huh. Ah, stop everybody. I'll tell you the two things. He said, fruitful labor. Labor where you go to work and you like what you do and you get paid an amount of money that puts a roof over your head and food on the table. And the other one, reciprocal love. You have both of those, you have a full life. This class is over. And he drops the <laughs> mic and walks off. And as I sit across from you, you have the full life. And many people don't have that full life. I don't have that life that you have. Now, I may not be necessarily right now looking for parts of that life mm -hmm. that might be a lie i tell myself but when i sit across from you i'm sitting across from somebody who has a full and complete life on a trajectory that's moving up like a plane taking off and that's Thank a you, wonderful Barry. wonderful feeling to sit across that's from somebody like that very sweet of you to say that the truth Thank you. Well, you have you have your wonderful kids that you were talking about. And Love my boys. Do you think being a manager made you a better father? Because you probably were a father figure to so many people. I never. It's weird when you're a parent. You're you're never been a parent. And my dad, I never got to see how he parented. I think I am a really good father, but I have my faults because. Um, it's a trial and error business and there's a lot of things happening now. My kids are 13 and 14 and there's a lot of epidemics that are out there. I mean, in my kids' grades, probably 80% of the kids vape nicotine mm -hmm. or weed. Um, and I think 
what I want to do is I just want the main thing I want to impress upon my kids is that I want to let them know that your mind is very powerful and your mind will be powerful to bring you down and your mind will be powerful to bring you up. Your mind will help you make decisions that are great and your mind will help you make decisions that are bad. And I try to impress upon them that I, I, you're going to make errors in judgment. You're going to make mistakes. The only thing I ask of you is that don't make life-threatening decision mistakes. If you call me and you're drunk somewhere, that's, I'm, that's fine. Just don't get in a fucking car and drive. If you see your friend that's messed up, that's why you got the Uber app on your phone. Another piece of technology that has saved me. And then, you know, my kids can go wherever they want. People might say, you have your kid take an Uber at 14? Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. Because I don't want him getting in a car with somebody who he perceives as not being right. Um, right. So yeah. I, I want to know that they're not going to walk down the PCH, you know, a quarter of a mile because they perceive it's just a quarter of a mile like that girl did five years ago who was killed. Um, I, I, I don't, I just want them to make the right decisions. If you're gonna ride a, a moped, just put the helmet on, you know, or if you're gonna, but if you're gonna go to school and you're gonna cheat off somebody's test and you do that, no one died. You made a mistake. Mm -hmm. Thank God they haven't done that, but, right. but you made a mistake, but it's not life-threatening. No one died. Do you love being a father? I do love being a father, but it's, it's, I think the challenge is at this stage of the game, do you mind if I tell you two stories about my sons Please. that are, in, that are, I think they, they have a, a place, you know, adversity. It's what we all deal with. It doesn't matter who's listening. We've all dealt with it. And if you don't have adversity, chances are you're not going to get to the place where you want to go. As a matter of fact, that when I interviewed Rita Rudner, she talked all about how her daughter was a singer-songwriter and how it was so important to her daughter to do the... And she sat down with her daughter, who was 14. She says, honey, I can do anything. I can get you a producer. I can get you instruments. I can build a, a little studio inside the house. I can buy you the best guitar. I can get the graphic designer to do your album cover. I can get you lessons. I can get anything you want. There's only one thing I can't give you. And her daughter said, what's that, mommy? She said, adversity. And so you want your, peep, your kids to go through adversity, but you realize if you have a better life, where are they going to get the adversity from? Are they going to be okay? Mm -hmm. So a lot of times the way fate works, you pray that they get adversity from areas that you don't want to see them go through pain, but it's really important. So my younger son plays baseball. Great baseball player. This past Little League season, the only kid to hit a home run over the fence. But the coaches don't like him a lot. That are the decision makers because he challenges authority. So I got a tip off that for the all-star team that 
this coach that didn't like him was going to keep him off the all-star team. And I said, oh, God, this is crazy. I didn't tell my son. And this mm-hmm. other guy said, don't worry, I'm going to fix it. I'll go to the board, I'll fix it. And he did fix it. So we go to the first all-star tournament game. I get there and my son takes me over to the dugout and he says, Dad, look at the lineup. And the lineup, the guy written out the lineup card, he put him eighth. Mm-hmm. And he married him to another player. For those of you who know, in Little League, marrying somebody means you have these alternates and they take away one of your bats mm-hmm. to like two or three people. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. So my son looks at me and says, Dad, I'm, I've never, I mean, I've always batted at third or four. I've never, I, I don't, this guy doesn't like me. What happens if I don't do well? He's going to bench me. Yeah. And I looked at my son and I just pointed to the side of my head. And I just like that. And I just looked at him and just kept pointing at my head. Mm-hmm. He gets up, his first at bat, just like three men on, hits a home run over the fence, walks around. The coach is standing next to me inside the dugout, looks over at me and says, See? Yeah, see what I did? I knew what I was doing. <laughs> I motivated him. That's why he hit that home run. But it was the adversity that you know, did that. And I think in any business that you're in, that's the toughest part. And you talk about being a father, you have to weigh on these things that people bring to you throughout your life. And so you're always going to have these situations. Look at you with Chappelle. You go on, you don't do well. And it was a tough moment. But you knew that one day Chappelle will see you again. And Chappelle will notice you. And I can guarantee you Chappelle knows who you are. And I can guarantee you he knows about this podcast. And I can guarantee he takes notice because your trajectory is on the rise and we all take notice of people on the rise. And so that adversity is the way it's going to be. My other son, a year and a half ago, I was finding uh, writing on the wall by his bed saying how lonely he was and how he had no friends and nobody liked him and nobody could. And, and I had the same issues. And I said to him, I said, could you tell me how many people you've approached to be your friend? Mm-hmm. He said, nobody. I said, so why do you think you're going to get friends if you don't engage, if you don't take control over that? Well, what if they say no? I said, then there's another person. And what if they say no? Well, there's another person. And now, like, he has this core group of friends and, and he's producing this music that I can't even believe what he's doing. There's all these cycles of things that happen in our lives and our careers where we're going to have those low moments. If we don't have the low moments, we can never have the highs. It'll never, ever happen. And that's something I look about for myself because as I am as a parent, you know, I've taken some enormous hits in this crazy business. And I don't know why I don't let them bother me. Maybe it's because I know I can do it. Look, when you do something once, and it goes well, that could be a fluke. 
you do something twice, coincidence. Three times, it might be just luck. But when you start working with an artist and who is not known and has no money in their pocket and 19 or 20 times in your career, your talent combined with theirs somehow makes a combination to where they get to the next level where everybody knows their name and they have a lot of money to do whatever they want and they have great success and respect. Then you have to say to yourself, okay, I, I think I can do this. <laughs> right. And so, so the hits don't, they're not as, they're not as difficult. I think in the beginning, like when Chappelle fired me after eight or nine years, that was tough because I, I, you know, I, I loved him. I love him. I mean, I, I went to see him at Radio City Music with my son. He brought, he, he took care of us and yeah. had us backstage and was an incredible influence on my son. Um, that's another great part about being a father in this business. You know, when you know Jeannie Buss, you get to go to the chairman's room and you get to hang out with her and the players. Right. When you know David Copperfield, you get to go to Vegas and David Copperfield takes your sons backstage and and gives them the tour. You know, when you are producing movies, you get to go on the set with your kids and show them how it works and or you get to go to a television taping. And so I think that's another great part about being a parent, even the tiniest little thing. You could go to a a Byron Allen show, make me laugh or whatever, not make me laugh, whatever funny you should ask. And, mm-hmm. and you can learn how television is made. Um, so, but on the other side, going to what I was talking about, it's like, it, you know, these things are tough hits when you're, when you, when you love somebody and you care about them and you, and you, you perceive that the evidence shows that you've been doing a good job. You got a guy who's done four, hundred million dollar movies in a row Chappelle Mm -hmm. 40 television sets before he was 20 years old but you're taken out because our business isn't where it's like it's funny like when you (laughs) when you're with a dry cleaner for eight years and you go to the dry cleaner for eight years and then another dry cleaner opens up and you go to the other dry cleaner you don't feel sorry for the dry cleaner that you left after eight years it's like oh, that's business right 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 but in our business it's more personal it's, yeah it's very personal and so but i i really have so much respect and love for all the people that i've worked with and for the most part all of them i have a great relationship with there are some that don't talk to me as much anymore i'll run into them and they'll be incredibly gracious and wonderful but there are some that i can feel keep their distance from me mm-hmm. and that's that that's that sad but again everybody's different every person is sure. different and i don't think that that makes them a bad person because they want to not be as right you're always going to have the graph you can look at the graph in every segment of life there's going to be the person that's the most forgiving and the least forgiving. Every sure. person in your life, there's going to be the smartest person you know 
and the dumbest person you know. Mm -hmm. Every person in your life, there's going to be the luckiest person you know and the most unlucky person you know. Sure, yeah. You know, and it goes, that's the way it is. And if you mix that with fate, and fate, again, is, is such an incredible thing of how the world works. And I know people don't really look at it a lot in our business because you can't look at fate and say, hey, I'm going to make it because of fate. But when you think of like even how you met your wife, let's say, mm -hmm. look, I was in a I was in a foreign country 11,000 miles away, and I was in an, a layover for one night in Manila. And this may sound, sound silly because it has nothing to do with business, but I think it's relevant is that it was my last night, and I was just, somebody told me to go to this restaurant, and, you know, I, you know I'm single, I, I, but I'm not like a crazy person, but I'm mm -hmm. just, and it was my last night, and I'm, I don't want to say I was lonely, but I, I wasn't with anybody. I didn't have anybody to talk to. And I had a few things I wanted to do. I wanted to go to a late night market. I wanted to go for a meal and then go home to the hotel. And I remember I was eating my meal. I finished my meal. You did that universal thing for the check, you know, the yeah. writing the check in the air. The guy comes over. He gives me the check. I sign it. I start. I don't know what time I'm going to do that. I don't have a plan like, okay, at, mm -hmm. at 10, 19, I'm going to do the check symbol. Okay? Right. So I do that. I start walking towards the street for the cab. I hear, sir, sir, you forgot to sign this other piece. Oh, okay. I go back. I sign it. Mm -hmm. Another delay. Like, I'm ready. I'm walking out. I see a Starbucks. I'm like, hey, there's a Starbucks. You and in Starbucks. Manila. <laughs> I go, I go inside. I yeah. get an English breakfast tea. I wait in line. I go and I walk to the street. There's no one on the street. It's like midnight or something. Mm -hmm. And I want to go to this all night market. And I'm waiting on the stoop for a cab to come by. And I'm just looking at my phone. I see the cab pull up. I go, I stand, and I open up the door, and I turn my head, and there's a beautiful woman standing there. She says, where are you going? And I'm thinking to myself, well, I was going to this market. You want some company? I'm like, okay. And like... I was about to just go to this market alone and just not talk with me. And I got to spend like maybe an hour and a half talking to somebody from 11,000 miles away who was smart, who spoke my language because I didn't speak her language. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much about the country and I had some laughs and some fun. And I felt like, well, I'm not, this isn't a lonely time. I'm hanging out with somebody. Right. And it was a great moment, but it never would have happened without fate. Like all the different things. Are you, you going to fly her over here and marry her now? No. Is that the next? <laughs> no. no, I'm not going to fly her over and marry her. That's, that's not my thing. But I think about how yeah. you are, you know, where you met your wife and, and how it all happens. And it's like. Yeah, you, here I'm sitting in this home that you guys have built and it's the same with our business and yeah. I look at your podcast and, and I don't mean to shine your ass or anything like that but for the audience if you look at Danny's podcast and if you were to study um, 
how the branding came out in the beginning and how he came out in the beginning and you listen mm. to things in the beginning and then you look at the artwork now on the podcast and how it's put together and how he lays it all out and the message mm -hmm. and how it all is and then you look at the tra tra trajectory of the numbers and how they start and how they're growing and how they're moving up and the dedication and and the and 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 the talking about building a studio in the other room. Yeah. These are the things that are really, really important for you to study. It's not just the words and the interviews. It's looking. I'm also I'm, brilliant. You forgot that. <laughs> I did forget that. But one of the things uh, I think that's important um, that I wanted to share with you, because I, you know, you have a lot of people who come on. The last person that I interviewed was this guy, Greg Garcia. Mm-hmm. Hasn't come out yet. He created My Name is Earl, uh, Raising Hope, and um, the guest book on TBS that's on now. And he said that he lives by this. And I feel when I sit across from you, I feel like this is how you live your life. And I, I, that's the reason why I'm bringing him. He said, I believe everyone should have three lists. I said, really, three lists? He said, yeah, three lists. I said, what's the first list? He said, the first list is your big goals, your bucket list goals. Mm -hmm. So if you're a comedian, you start now, one might be, you know, I want to have an hour special. I want to have my own sitcom. I want to, you know, the big goals. Mm -hmm. I said, what's the second list? He said, the second list is an offshoot of the big goal list. You have all the big goals on there, but the second list is underneath each big goal is what are the steps you're going to take to get to those big goals that are long-term goals? What's it going to take to get that hour special, to mm -hmm. be a regular at the comedy store when you're an open micer, or to get that sitcom? What are the steps for each one, one by one? And I said, well, what's the third list? So the third list. Groceries? The third list is a daily list. Yeah. It's a daily list Monday. This is what I'm doing today yeah. to further my life. And I'll amend that with one thing for the third list that I think is important. Just put one thing on the list that you want to learn. You know, maybe uh, I've never, I don't know, what's the recipe for apple pie or something? And you mm -hmm. just look that up that day. So you gain a little bit of knowledge. What's the meaning of Aurora Borealis? What is what, it? It's this light thing in the sky that happens. And, but, you know, the point being is that I look across from you and I feel like you're the kind of person who has that. You're moving forward. Yes, you get knocked down. Yes, you get the shit kicked out of you. <laughs> yes, you tell yourself, I'm going to be this. I'm going to be that. Mm -hmm. I'm getting healthier. I'm doing this. I'm moving in this direction. But you're doing it. And I see you and I notice and the greatest gift in every profession is people notice what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. I appreciate that. You're no very, very kind words. And uh, I'll take the compliment, something I learned how to do. All right. Um, I think it's a good, good a time as any to uh, transition into our philosopher. So do you feel ready to make that shift? Listen, if I can do it, I can do it. If I can't, I can't. You'll, you'll judge me. I think you can do it. 
I'll give him my best shot. I'm not the most uh, well-rounded, educated person in the world, but let us pray. Well, me, me neither. So you're in good company. The person that Alex picked out for you is someone named Herbert Spencer. I've never heard of Herbert Spencer before, but I'll read a little bit about him off Wikipedia. He lived from April 27th, 1820 till December 8th, 1903. He was an English philosopher, a biologist, an anthropologist, a sociologist, and a prominent classical liberal political theorist of the Victorian era. Spencer developed an all-embracing concept of evolution as the progressive development of the physical world, biological organisms, and humankind, and human culture and societies. As a polymath, he contributed a wide range of subjects, including ethics, religion, anthropology, economics, political theory, philosophy, literature, astronomy, biology. He did a lot. Sociology and psychology. He did pretty much every ology. And he was the only other English philosopher to have achieved any such widespread popularity as Bertrand Russell in the 20th century. Well, let me skip forward a little bit to a little bit about his personal life. Oh, here, I like hearing about the, the ending of people's lives. The last <laughs> decades of Spencer's life were characterized by growing disillusionment and loneliness. He never married, and after 1855 was a perpetual hypochondriac who complained endlessly of pains and no physician could diagnose him. By the 1890s, his readership had begun to desert him while many of his closest friends died and he had come to doubt the confident faith and progress he had made the centerpiece of his philosophical system. That's a pretty grim ending. In 1902, shortly before his death, Spencer was nominated for the Nobel Prize for Literature. He continued writing all his life in later years, often by dictation until he succumbed to poor health at age 83. His ashes are interred at the eastern side of London's Highgate Cemetery facing Karl Marx's grave. So there you go. That's a... Uh, but he kept working. He, he sounds like he, he went through some, you're talking about the lightness and the darkness. He went through some pretty dark stuff, but he worked through it. He kept working right till the end. What do you think of that so far? You're, you're, you're silently sitting there, so I'm curious what you're thinking. I'm thinking of in, when I interviewed Gary Marshall, I was the last interview before he passed away. I had had breakfast with Peter Engel who uh, created Saved by the Bell and who is a good friend of mine. And we, we were executive producers with Jay Moore on Last Comic Standing. Mm -hmm. And Peter is in his 80s. And I'm at breakfast and he says, I'm done. I'm done, Barry. I don't, I'm done. I don't want to meet any women. I don't want to do any work anymore. I'm done. You know, I'm packing in. I said, Peter, you're, you have a great mind. You can do anything. You created Saved by the Bell in your 50s. Mm -hmm. You could do so many different things. Barry, I just don't want to do it anymore. And then I sat down with Gary Marshall, same age, good friends. And he's like, I'm working till the end. I'm working every day. I love what I do. I love working. I'm going to continue working. Mm -hmm. And nothing's going to stop me. And so it just shows you like... Everybody has, their mind works a different way and their mind tells them, again, the mind is powerful. For Peter Engel at that time, it's like, fuck it, I'm done. Mm -hmm. When he has so much to offer. And Gary Marshall at that time, fuck it, I'm not done. 
Right. I'm going to keep going. Which would you rather be when you're very old, God willing, at the end of your life? Do you want to be the old? (laughs) When you're very old. Okay. Do you want to be the guy who still wants to do stuff right up till the end? Or do you want to be the guy who feels like he finished it all and doesn't want to do anymore? No, I love doing things. I love meeting people. I love, look, I, I went to the supermarket last night with my son at like, nobody's there it's like 11 o'clock at night and there's a cashier there named michael and a ralph's in malibu he does like these voices that are incredible like the greatest voiceover people of our generation that level mm-hmm. like 20 in a row and every time i see him i'm like listen man do you want to be in this fucking grocery store for the rest of your life you got a talent you can do this. You can make it happen. How come you never get me? I always ask him, how come you never get me anything? And he said, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. And I take him aside and my son's standing there and I put my finger in his face and I said, listen, motherfucker, mm-hmm. I want that fucking voiceover tape. I yeah. want 20 voices put together in random order and I want the, I want that audio to be great. And if I don't get that fucking tape, mm-hmm. I'm going to come down here and I'm going to fucking kick your ass. <laughs> I said, you could get one, you could fail 99 out of 100 times sending your auditions out to people. Mm-hmm. All you need is one job and you are going to make more money on that one job than you'll make in one fucking year here. Mm-hmm. So you better give me that fucking tape and shake my hand and look me in the eyes and tell me I'm getting that tape because I know you're not going to lie to me. I hope you get it. So I hope I yeah, get it too. Yeah, I'm excited to so hear So that's what is. I think about. Yeah. I, I'm sorry I got uh, you know what? medieval there. I, I, I used to work in a supermarket as a cashier in high school. It was one of the greatest jobs. Maybe he doesn't want to leave it. It was so much fun. That phone, you could pick up the phone and get on the loudspeaker. <laughs> And I used to, I used to get in so much trouble, but I'd get on there and be like, we got a melon down, aisle seven, it's bleeding, you know? So uh, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think any man should be wearing a baseball cap with a feather in it, <laughs> you know, uh, doing, doing that kind of work. I right. Know. Do I have a feather in my No. Okay. This, guy <laughs> oh, this guy has a feather, right. Okay. So here we know a little bit about Herbert Spencer and his depressing end, also that he was way more accomplished than I'll ever be. All those ologies and sociology and biology. And, but here's the little synopsis from Alex. He says, we have a biological imperative to care for ourselves more than others. This already sounds interesting to me with the context of talking to you, Barry, because one thing I do get from you is that you care for others more than you care for yourself. First of all, if we only cared about others, we would all die of neglecting ourselves. Secondly, joy is infectious, and it must start internally before it can be spread. If we are not, and boy, this guy should have took his own advice. Uh, If we are not full of self-love, we will not have the energy to perform outward acts of love. A modest ego is therefore not driven by evil, but by evolution. The most evolutionary successful creatures are built to feel pleasure more than pain to facilitate this process. Ego has a bad connotation, but it is an evolutionary gift. Again, when you talk about philosophy, 
philosophy a lot of times is a blanket statement about the general population. Mm -hmm. But as we all know, there's many different individuals and in how they react and are. Like you said, I've never put myself first. I don't know what that, I mean, you know, I'm wearing $10 worth of clothing on right now and mm -hmm. I, I want to put myself first. Like, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I'm going to share this with you. I was in Studio City, not, not about this, but you're going to make a joke about it. I was in Studio City three times in the past 24 hours. Mm -hmm. There's a Wasteland store right on Ventura Boulevard. Now, for those of you who don't know, Wasteland is a, is a vintage clothing store. Again, getting back to my roots, I love used clothing and right. stuff like that. And I go in there and there's this gray leather jacket that I see. And it's $300 and it's beautiful, but it's like $300. Right. Now I go in there, I don't get it. I drive back there 12 hours later to look at it again, try it on, I love it, I don't get it. I'm back there the next day, I go in there again, try it in, on, I don't get it. Why, why don't I get it? I can't afford $300. Funny if it doesn't fit, okay. No, it fits great. No, I get it, go on, sorry. But why? Yeah, why? Why don't I get it? Because my mind is thinking to myself that maybe I am not worthy. I don't deserve to that pleasure, so let me just, Paula Poundstone used to have this great joke. She used to say, you know, when she was struggling, uh, she used to take her clothes to the dry cleaner, but she didn't have enough money to get them mm -hmm. out. So she'd walk up to the front of the counter and she'd say to the guy, listen, um, can I just see the pants? <laughs> so like there's pleasure in me trying on the jacket yeah. and sort of renting the jacket in the mirror and seeing myself in it. But to right. buy it, I just, I stop myself from the pleasure of that. And I think maybe I think that's too egotistical to just walk in and, mm -hmm. and buy a $300 jacket. Now, what is $300? Well, to give you, put things in perspective, okay? when I was in Manila for that one night, the average person makes $250 a month there. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah. In Thailand, $200 a month. So sometimes right. you look at how people are and you look at how the way it is and you're like, okay. And so I think to myself, if I am going to put that money towards something, maybe it's better to put it towards... Um, something worthy or maybe something for my sons or maybe a maybe a music program for one or, or a baseball program for the other i know that i should be able you only live life once and i would tell you danny mm -hmm. i would tell you a hundred times and we've had this conversation Get down there and buy that fucking jacket. You deserve it, uh -huh. and you will make the money to pay for that jacket. Mm -hmm. It's going to make you happy. You love it. You'll only live once. Get the jacket. That's what I don't understand about myself, and we talk about these philosophies and philosophers. Right. I, I don't know why I would tell everybody to get the jacket, and you will pay for the jacket. If you put your mind to it, you'll get it. And why I don't apply that philosophy to myself. Yeah, you need to talk to yourself the way you talk to that cashier at Ralph's. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, it's like, and I yeah. don't think twice about certain things that have happened to me and, and spending certain money in certain ways. And maybe mm-hmm. it's like the other, um, I don't know if it's fair to say this, but eh, whatever. Talk about a supermarket. I'm in a supermarket. It was uh, Hanuk, uh, the, the, the Eve of Hanukkah or whatever. And, you know, you're in line and there's this... There's this rabbi in 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 line. He's, he's a religious man. He's got mm-hmm. the talus, the payas. He's got the yarmulke. He's wearing all black, mm-hmm. and he's got all this stuff in the card. And he's flustered. And the guy said, "You know, I can hear the guy saying, card declined, sir. Do you have any cash or mm-hmm. anything else?'" And he's like, "No. Uh, can I write you a check? No." And like I, he doesn't know I'm hearing this, mm-hmm. and and I and I see the guy, and he I, it just. And I just put my hand by my mouth so the rabbi can't hear me, and I just mouth to the cashier, I'll, I'll take care of it. Wow. And the cashier looks over at me and he says, it's $189. Uh-huh. I said, so I'll take care of it. Yeah. And, um, and, I, and I take care of it, and um, the guy says, uh, this man took care of it. It's all set. You can go, sir. And he comes up to me and says, tell me your number or your address or whatever, and I want to make sure I get it back to you. I said, listen, don't worry about it. He says, no, I can't. Yeah. I can't do that. You have to. I said, look, I don't, I don't, I don't want it. I, I just have a great you know, night with your family or whatever. Yeah. He says, you have to. I'm not leaving here until I get a number. And so I gave him the number of my rabbi. Uh-huh. But he didn't know, you know, what uh-huh. I mean. So you put you sent him up on a rabbi play date. Yeah, and so and I said, listen, you yeah. can send the money, call this number, and they'll know where to, you can give the money to, and I so wow. give to the other rabbi's congregation. Wow. Well, that's like a double mitzvah right there. But the point I'm trying to make is that why doesn't it bother me, you know, to do it for someone else? Yeah, like why why can't I do something for myself, something nice for myself? I don't I don't know. I mean, and I don't think I'll have the philo- philosophical answer for that. Can I make a presumption? Yes, please. And I, I hope I'm not out of line in saying this. I think it goes back to well, I think it goes back to your upbringing by not having a dad. Could be, you know. Well, what was your relationship with your mom? Which, how, how did how did she treat you? Um, my mom treated me with so much love, and like my mother was the kind of person where, like, if you got home and you were doing a late night thing or with your friend, you got home at one in the morning, there'd be mm-hmm. a hot meal on the stove, and she'd get up out of bed and she'd give you food, and it was it was things always centered around food and generosity. And and kindness and um, and love, mm-hmm. and because she'd suffered so much pain, my mom, uh, my father died at thirty-seven. That was her husband, obviously, and her husband before that died at thirty. Oh man! So she lost two husbands, and you lost a wife, and I lost a wife. Wow! So um, so tragedy is a part of my life, but it's also what's shaped me because I wouldn't be the person I am if my dad raised me probably. Again, fate. You kind of had to be the man of the house. Yeah. So so that's what I was thinking in terms of like, you know, you always could never put yourself first because there wasn't like a father figure there to, to take care of it. That's probably true. And I, I, again, you can always point to fate of how it shapes our lives and, and how it is. And again, 
who wants my father to die. But if my father hadn't died, I wouldn't be the person I am right now. Um, and yeah. so whatever shaping my kids, that's the way it's meant to be. And, and, you know, I talked about epidemics of vaping and things like that. Look, you know, um, everybody says, don't hang around with that kid. He's a bad influence. Mm-hmm. Well, when I had four clients on SNL, all I wanted to do was hang around Farley. Chris Farley was a wrecking ball of joy, but I knew he was doing heroin. I still wanted to hang around him all the time. I wasn't going to do heroin. I knew I wasn't going to do heroin. Mm-hmm. If I was offered to do heroin, I wasn't going to do it. I knew I wasn't going to get drunk if I was offered to get drunk. Were but, you always sober? Yeah, I was always sober. Mm-hmm. But not, not sober like never have a drink. I But drink you never sober. had a, a problem. No. But, yeah. But everybody has the gene. You know, I don't know which ones of my sons, if any, have the gene. But if they have the gene, they're going to be drinking. They're going to be doing drugs. They're mm-hmm. going to be doing whatever. And they're going to have to figure out how to stop themselves from doing it. It or must else. be kind of, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, please interrupt. It must be kind of terrifying on some I'm thinking about all that you've seen in comedy. And I mentioned, I started this show by saying you're a legend and you've been in this for so long. And I'm, I'm just going through my mind now just... All the people who you've seen, and it's sad because we lose so many great comedians uh, all the time to uh, to drugs and alcohol. And uh, look, somebody who you've talked about on your last podcast that I listened to, uh, Ralphie May. I mean, this is a guy who, um, again, I think about what I could say if if he were sitting here because I have this philosophy where I'm not going to say anything if I wouldn't say it in front of them. Look. The man was, I don't think the man was ever under 400 pounds the entire 20 years I knew him. Okay? So what's the pattern? The pattern is I can go and park here and I have a quarter. I can put it in the meter and... And, and I can be safe and run in and mm-hmm. I won't get the ticket. Now, let me not put the quarter in the meter. Mm-hmm. And I can go in and run in and come out. And oh, when I don't have that ticket on the windshield, God, I won. And that's all I look at is what Ralphie was doing. Mm-hmm. He was just continuously not putting the quarter in the meter. Yeah. And then one day the ticket comes and in his case, the ticket was his life because you know what you're doing. Yeah. You know what you're doing. You're not an idiot. I used to beg him, even being an overweight person myself, and talk about fate. I think, you know, one gift I think that Ralphie gave me, and I toured with the guy for eight years, eight years, um, and I worked with him for 10 years. And I loved him. I still love him. One gift that he gave me in his dying was that I think he saved my life with his dying because I'm now down 38 pounds since then because because it scared the living daylights out of me that he died like that. Amazing. That's, that's fantastic news. But again, fate of somebody 
having to lose their life. So I wish it never happened that way. But I used to beg him, I, Barry, I said, let's go for a walk together. We both have a problem. I'll come up to your house in the hills. We'll go for a walk. And he, okay, fine, Dan Lobel, all right. And I get there, and he, I just couldn't get him out of the house. Yeah. Like, and, and I had the same problem on a lesser level, but still. Like, I, I just, I wanted so badly for us to do it together, you know? And it's, and that's, an, again, and not to keep going back to, you know, this emotional moment, but going back to your life, your life here in this house, it's like, you know, to have a woman who yeah. loves you unconditionally, whether you're 38 pounds more, 38 pounds less, she fucking loves you for who you are. I mean, that's like, think about that. Think about guys, if you'll oblige me. Think about a hundred guys you know. It's a lot to think about at once. And think about if they met a girl uh -huh. who was, let's say, your size. How many would love them unconditionally for who they were? That's what's amazing about certain great women. Mm -hmm. They see the whole picture. And your wife always saw how brilliant and funny and unique and, and saw the potential for you to get healthy like you're getting healthy. Yeah. And I got really blessed. You are blessed. Yeah. The interesting thing with fate, it's like uh, you can't count too much on it. I remember you told me a rabbi story, so I'll tell you a rabbi story. Sure. I was I was like freaking out eight years ago. Another eight-year thing. Eight years ago. You're so young. I don't know where all these freakouts come from. What, 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 did, uh, you, what did you freak out when you were four? Yeah. <laughs> I freaked out as soon as I was born. I went to see this big Kabbalistic rabbi. I just wanted to know if I should keep going or, or what I should do. I needed some direction in my life. And I, I'd met him once when I was a kid. And I remember like he like read my mind. He came to our school and um, he met with us and he like he knew everything about you. And I was like, did I imagine that? Was that real? Who is this guy? So I look him up and he's, he's still around. And I, I just showed up. I pulled a Barry Katz move. I didn't have an appointment. I just showed up. I said, I need to speak to that rabbi. So I, I went and I talked to him and I said, you know, I don't know if I'm on the right trajectory. I don't know. I asked him about a lot of things. I said, but I don't know with this career or whatever. I said, I always, I always thought that I was destined for greatness. I said, you know things. Am I? And uh, and he said, and he like laughed, and he goes, well, "Greatness is not something you're destined for. It's not something you're fated for." He goes, "It's something you achieve." And uh, something so simple, but it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And it and it was the thing I needed to hear. It, it re-energized me. I just remembered, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be achieving this. I can't just put it in cruise control and wait for fate, you know. And now you're. Telling people what they need to hear. Now I'm a genius. You got it, buddy. Anyway, going back to our philosophy here. Here's a paragraph written by our guy, Herbert Spencer. And let's go through it as we, as we read and see, see if it speaks to us. He who carries self-regard far enough to keep himself in high spirits. We talked about the fact that you leave the house and you bring a lot of light with you. And here it says, he who carries himself in high regard. But we also discussed that you wouldn't buy yourself the jacket. So how do you do it? How do you have all this positivity 
with that duality going on? I think I've seen both sides. I've seen the darkness and I've seen the light. You know, I've had somebody die in my arms. I've seen my mother crying in the kitchen um, over the loss of her husband. Um, I've seen my sons go through a lot of emotional pain and difficulty. And I've seen artists who had the whole world in their hand just throw it all away by complicating winning, by doing stupid things, by being dramatic, mean, asshole tendencies, or just using drugs and throwing their life away, or, you know, I mean, I can say this safely, you know, about Ralphie, and I hope you wouldn't be mad at me looking down, you know. Just, you know, just it's a gradual throwaway of a life. Greg Giraldo, a gradual throwaway of a life. It's like it's, it's, and that's the darkness. Somebody who can't fight the darkness. And, and uh, that doesn't mean they're a bad person. That just means they, you're watching it happen in front of you and you make a choice. Do I want to be that person or do I not want to be that person? Look, I'm the kind of person I can't leave the house unless everything's in order. You know, if uh, I can't leave, if they're, you know how you meet certain people though when they say, hey, I'm never making my bed. What's the reason for making my bed? I'm just going to get back in it. Mm-hmm. And there's people like me who can't leave without everything. And I'm the kind of guy in a hotel room that makes the place up before the maid comes in because I want to make sure it's nice for the maid. Mm-hmm. So I, that's the way I feel. I, that doesn't make me right or wrong. It's just how I how I'm formed. That's my blueprint. And, and it, it's my winning formula. Now, am I the most successful guy in the world? No. Am I the least successful guy in the world? No. Am I living a life that I love? I think I am. Are there parts to my life that I don't love as much? Probably, but I'm still navigating the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I've been married. I've been divorced. Um, I remember you talk about how you feel and how this philosopher feels. I remember the first time I went over to my ex's house, who's a really, really talent, one of the most talented people I've ever met in my life, uh, Susanna Brisk. She just wrote a book uh, on her own. Uh, with no publisher that went to number one at the sex and uh, health and um, category uh, on Amazon. Um, How to use your inspiration to get laid. (laughs) Um, She did it. She did it on her own. You know, I didn't do anything for her, but I go over her house and come in and it's your boyfriend is there. She's been with him for three years and beautiful house in Topanga and and I hugged him and I hugged her and I said is there a bathroom I could use and I looked around and I I went in the bathroom and I shut the door and I started crying um and you know how you look in the mirror when you're crying sometimes and you're like what 
why am I crying? Am I crying because I'm jealous? No. Am I crying because I wish I had this? Mm-hmm. No. Why are you crying? Seasonal allergies? <laughs> <laughs> and I realized the reason I was crying is I was so fucking happy that she was happy and fulfilled and excited about the future and a new journey. And we had our journey. And I know that she loves me. And I know we had an amazing life together. Mm-hmm. So many great times. But now this is a new journey. And, and I was so happy for her. And I haven't cried. I remember the last time I cried. Um, and I don't have that journey that she has. I don't have a new life partner. Uh, and maybe I tell myself that I don't want one. And when I do, I don't know yet what it is. Even when you say you don't, you always say it like, maybe I'm lying to myself. Yeah. It sounds I, like you know you do. Yeah, because you don't know. Yeah. You, you, there's a great thing that Peter Engel always said. He, he actually wrote a sitcom one time, a pilot, The Lies We Tell Ourselves. Because our mind is powerful and it takes us where we want to go. But I see what she did and how she changed her life, mm-hmm. how she changed her career, how she sat down with nothing on her computer you sit down for the first time there's nothing right and she wrote a book that went to number one on amazon from nothing somebody doesn't write books doesn't do that Mm -hmm. and so that let me know i never wrote a fucking book yet yet and she wrote the book and she did it and i'm so proud of her and i'm so like and so i i look at how the world works and i know how dark she's felt about herself and her Mm -hmm. work and i don't want to get into it because you could read her stuff but it's like she's had a really tough time thinking about how to how it's going to work how she's going to change careers what she's going to she wanted to be an actor she tested for snl she didn't get it jay farrow got it that year with um another woman who i forget now but the fact is, is that, so she channeled her energy into something else, mm-hmm. another cylinder in her engine. And, and sometimes I don't know if I'm always that guy. I know I'm doing the podcast in my spare time, and I know the impact that it's made. And, but there's still that thing that all of us have, which we don't really always know how to navigate, which is... If you could pretend you had all the money in the world and the health of yourself and your family, so you have all the money in the world, everybody's healthy, but in exchange for that, you have to go to work in a career doing something 50 hours a week for the rest of your life. And if everybody listening could think about what that would be that they would do, that's technically what they should be doing. But they don't because they're scared because they look at the job they're in. Okay, this makes this. I make this much a year. If I drop this and go into this, I won't make that much money if I do that. They never say, um, let me rephrase. 
They rarely say, oh, I drop this and I go into this and I'm going to make more money than I made before. Mm-hmm. Because their mind is like, okay, safety here. I can be safe here. I know what I have here. There is the unknown. Mm-hmm. And I keep going back to Peter Engel. I don't know why, but I, I went to his house for the first time. And I'm sitting at the counter of his um, this granite counter. And there's this paperweight. I'll never forget, it was a metal paperweight. And I picked it up, and on it, it said, imagine what you could accomplish if you knew that you would never fail. Think about that. I'm going to say that one more time. Imagine what you could accomplish if you knew you would never fail. So I would go and fix Africa. <laughs> I know you would. Yeah. I think if Africa was uh, up and running properly, we'd all be in good shape. But if you were Trump, you'd say, fuck Africa. Let's fix the United States. It's, it's got to all start with Africa. That's the heart. That's the heart of the world. That's, that's it. Once Africa is at peace, we're all at peace. And, you know, I, 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 and I'm not a political person at all, but I will say this. You talk about adversity. Um, forget Let's just take us back to election night. I'm sure everyone would be in agreement listening right now, whether they be a Republican, a Democrat, an independent. I'm drawing a circle on a paper. Mm-hmm. I can confirm this, people. A hundred percent of all the media hits involving Donald Trump. Just, just asking you what. Any media, doesn't matter if it's an SNL sketch, a, a monologue on uh, mm-hmm. a late night talk show, a news program, a newspaper article. If you were to say before the election night, before people went to the polls, what percentage of the media was positive for Donald Trump and what percentage was negative? I think it was all negative, right? It was just like 99 to 1%, right? Right. So think about in your life or anybody listening, think about you go to work every day or you go to school every day or you whatever you do and 99% of everything that happens is people shitting on you and just slicing you verbally and 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 in writing and all different things everything making fun of you everything is a negative thing people come out you touched me the wrong way here's a tape of me saying grab the but it's like think about if you could possibly win in your life and accomplish your goals when 99 percent of everything thrown at you is negative. And this motherfucker won the election with 99% of everything against him. Now, I may not be a Trump supporter, or I may not be political, but to me, there's something to look at that. There's yeah. always something to look in everything of how the adversity people go through and what they can go with a powerful mind. It's a terrific piece of inspiration there. 
I feel that that's an incredible message to anybody that no matter what happens, I mean, I can't imagine walking out of the house and 99 out of 100 people I meet just look at me and say, you're an asshole. You suck. Right. You're the worst. I mean, I'd... Talk about pushing forward with your goals, huh? What do you got next for me? Well, I think we still have to finish this paragraph, right? Okay, let's see. But one whose vigor is undermined by self-sacrifice carried too far becomes to those around a cause of depression and renders himself incapable of actively furthering their welfare. I think we've, you know, been over this and we covered yeah, both sides. I so. so is I'll there be, is there a little more there? Or? Yep. There are those who by their joyousness beget joy in others. And there are those who by their melancholy cast a gloom on every circle they enter. And again, you know, this last point here is like we talked about with the Donald Trump thing. It's it's like as they say in the military, one person can bring down a whole army. One person in a tree can take down a whole army. Mm-hmm. And one person in a group of people can bring anybody down. You can be in a comedy show and having the greatest time of your life and have the greatest show of your life. 300 people sold out at an improv and you're on stage. And one person from the back can destroy the show. Mm-hmm. And that can always happen. The question is how you handle it. And if we look at comedy in that way, and just, I don't know why I'm talking about hecklers here, but you can tell a lot about a person in comedy by how they deal with hecklers. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example. You know, there's people who get heckled, and what happens? They unravel. They start swearing at the person. They pull a Michael Richards. They just can't handle it. Then there's people who get heckled and they destroy the person and it's funny and they crush them mm-hmm. like a bug and the crowd goes crazy. And there's everything in between of how it goes. But then there's those very rare people who you really learn who they are as a person. Like Harlan Williams. Somebody will Harlan Williams will be on stage. Somebody will heckle Harlan Williams brutally. Uh-huh. And he'll just look down and they'll say, what's happening, little buddy? <laughs> Is there everything okay at home? How can we as a collective group of people get together and help you right yourself at this point in your life, buddy? Yeah. You know, so, so it's like everybody has their own way of dealing with right. the thing that the philosopher said. And, yeah. and again, it comes true in every profession. Well, yeah, it's, it's that collective energy that I think he's talking about that we all have a part in influencing. And we're about to close the show out with our three quotes, but I also think this is a good opportunity to tell you that you bring good energy and you deserve a leather jacket for it. How about that? You should go and get that jacket. Uh-huh. We'll see if it's still open. I don't know if I ever told you about this, but I, I, I work with kids in a rehab in Malibu. Um, that's why I'm there all the time. And I came out of this podcast. A fan of the podcast owns the rehab and he, I ran into him. And he's like, you're so funny. Uh, and I said, what do you do? He says, I have, I work with uh, teens with drug addiction. And I said, I'd love to come and talk to them. Like I talk to people on the podcast. And maybe I can use my skills as a comedian to get through to them in a way that a therapist wouldn't. And I've been doing that for over two years now. And one of the things I always tell these kids is something I learned in my, in my own life about, I said, you know, when you're in rehab, everybody tells you, you got to learn to love yourself. I said, and people told me that my whole life, you got to love yourself. And I didn't know how to apply it. 
And then I realized you can't love someone if you don't like them first. You first have to find the things you like about yourself and put those on a pedestal instead of the things you don't like. And then you can slowly start to sort of date yourself and finally fall in love with yourself. You can't just love somebody because someone tells you to love them. Someone says, love yourself. You may as well say, love that guy or, you know, love that bench. You know, you, you can't if you don't. But uh, with regards to self-love, it's something you build up to. And you, you sort of just have to really take a moment to focus on your positive qualities. And you kind of can build and slowly, like, like I, I really can honestly tell you I do love myself now because I realized I have faults. I understood where they came from. And uh, I know I'm a, good, I'm a good-hearted person. I know I'm a good person. And with that knowledge, uh, what's not to love, you know? I agree with you there. I love it. That's so yeah. amazing, Danny. Jesus. All right, Barry, will you take us home with these quotes? Yes, I will. Thank you. Quote number one by Herbert Spencer. The preservation of health is a duty. Few seem conscious that there is such a thing as physical morality. You know, the interesting thing is I just went to Thailand for four days to Bumrungrad Hospital because in the, the United States, they don't authorize diagnostic screening tests because they cost too much money for the health insurance companies. Mm -hmm. So I heard about this great hospital where people come from all over the world and they do all the testing from the CT scans to the abdominal um, ultrasounds to everything from head to toe. And I just got all these tests done and uh, it was amazing. And um, uh, so that quote means a lot to me here. Yeah. Yeah, I hope you're in great health. No, it's, 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 it's good. It's good. Quote number two, we have to deal with man as a product of evolution, with society as a product of evolution, and with moral phenomena as products of evolution. Interesting. Very interesting. What, what, do, you, what do you get from that with regards to uh, today's world? Well, I think that the whole part of at least what I think about it personally and in my professional world is the art of evolving as a man and the art of evolving and creating an impact for more than one man and more than one woman, which is part of the society. And then that in turn creates a tone and a, a form of listening that creates a moral kind of compass or how you feel like maybe people can help their lives or do things that maybe can enhance their lives better um, through the opinions of the people that you interview. So I love it. Last quote, the wise man must remember that while he is a descendant of the past, he is a parent of the future. Fantastic. Fantastic. I always think that, you know, when I talk on uh, a show like this, I, I don't really understand what's happening. Like, it's not like I'm, it's not like I got my cliff notes here and I'm, I, I, I've got, okay, I'm going to touch upon that. I'm going to do that. Then I'm going to talk about that. Then right. we're going to do this and that. Things channel through people sometimes. And 
let's face it, you know, we all know who are the old souls and we all know the people that are new souls. And I know there's something going on, but I don't know what it is. I can't mm-hmm. quantify it in a court of law. Right. But what I'm saying and talking about, I, I don't know where the, this stuff is really coming from. Uh, it's coming from my life experiences, but part of me believes, as crazy as it sounds, that it's coming from past philosophers' experiences or past rabbis or past people or past lives that maybe I might have experienced. Or if I didn't experience, there's some force that's coming through me mm-hmm. because I don't know how we come across these things all the time right and what we're talking about and how we quantify things as we're saying them but i love that last quote because um you know being a great parent is one of the greatest things we have because we influence the future generations and so i think as ourselves as people who do podcasting Um, and do modern-day philosophy, I think what we're trying to do is we're just trying to have a positive impact on uh, as many people as we can. Yeah. Yeah, it's great going into a store and a supermarket and shaking somebody's hand and inspiring them to do something great. Or threatening them to do something great. (laughs) Yes, it's great to... It's really great to manage artists. And, you know, when you get somebody, when somebody gets Saturday Night Live with your talent and theirs, it's an amazing feeling. But it's one person. And in this way, in this new world that's set up the way it is, that we go full circle and the way technology is, we're able to reach so many more people. And Mm. And we're, instead of reaching one person in a supermarket or one person that we manage or one movie that we produce or one television show that we executive produce, we get to um, bring the voices of so many great people out there that can help so many people to get to where they need to go faster, more efficiently, and with more love, compassion, and light. Yeah. I think I think you're right, and I think even when you're bringing one person to like Saturday Night Live or something, think about all the many people that they're going to inspire and influence, and that you were behind that as well. So I think one thing we definitely have in common, and why I so enjoyed this conversation, is that we love being able to affect people in a positive way. And uh, thank you for coming on my show and affecting my audience, hopefully in a positive way. I I certainly got a a lot out of that. Thanks, man. It's such an honor being here. And you're a a really, really wonderful, wonderful artist and man. And that's our show. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks again to Manager Barry Kitts, the manager. I told you the man speaks well of everybody. Even being a Hollywood guy, had good things to say about Trump. That's impressive. Um, And uh, what else can I tell you? That's our show for today. Please, let me reiterate to you to go and donate. Donate to my friend Gamio's wife's cancer treatment. You have a chance to try and help someone survive cancer. You got to take it.
You got to, got to, got to, got to take it. All right, go to gofundme.com slash Kaori's Treatment Fund. That's K-A-O-R-I-S dash treatment dash fund. Or just PayPal them at Baby R-U-L-Y-B-L-U-E-B-A-B-Y at hotmail.com. Always funny to me, like uh, you go to like look at somebody in, from Japan. They're using hotmail.com. It's like, oh, Gmail hasn't got to them yet. They must be able to get Gmail, right? Who the hell uses Hotmail? Foreign people, foreigners. All right, okay. A few quick acknowledgments. I just want to acknowledge Devin O'Sullivan, who did the amazing artwork for this podcast. I know that. The artwork has been up for a while now, but just because Barry Katz made mention of it and complimented it on the episode and said how cool the uh, podcast art was, I think people need to know the brilliant genius artist behind it is Devin O'Sullivan. Check him out on Facebook. Hit him up for design work. He's awesome. Great dude out of Oregon. Logan Heftel has been mastering this audio since episode one, and if you like the way it sounds... That's the dude to thank. And of course, this podcast wouldn't exist without our master philosopher, Alex Fossella, hilarious comedian in New York City. He also does the Broadway Baby podcast where he and his friends in New York talk about Broadway shows, which is something he's passionate about, and uh, I highly recommend it. Okay, on to the iTunes comments and stars. Don't forget to go and rate and subscribe the podcast. It really helps. It makes a big difference. It's a big deal. And just to let you know, I never do it, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to read the ones we got. And the last ones were from April. Didn't get any May comments. But maybe with your help, we'll get some June comments. But here's a here's a really nice one. Danny rocks and just says, Chef JJ. Chef JJ. Chef JJ. Now, that's a joke that only a few people know that I know. I don't know which one of them did this, but I know that this comes from somebody who I personally know. Uh, Here's the next one. Bentham episode. Four stars. All right. They didn't want to go for the full five, but at least they went past the three mark. I'm leaving a review so you make more episodes. I'm teaching ethics, and I came across this one during the week that I am teaching Utilitarianism. So fun to listen to you guys talk and analyze the quotes. I'll be telling my class about this podcast this week. Smiley face. Thank you very much. But, uh, you know, go for the fifth star. What's the difference to you? I always wonder, like, why, why are you gonna, like, why, why not put the fifth star? The message will still get there, and uh, I'll, I'll take it to heart. You don't have to, you don't have to skimp out on that fifth star. Like, uh, it costs the same amount to leave five stars. For you. All right. Anyway, I appreciate it. Four stars is good. The next one is five stars. Great job. Danny is a lover of comedy. He respects the craft and it shows. Keep up the great work. I am. And thank you. And I hope to keep up the great work. And I really do appreciate that. I do. I do love the craft. All right. By the way, arts and crafts, I always think is such a funny term. Like there's the arts, pretty fancy stuff, you know. Art, prestigious, powerful, craft. Feels like just cutting um, oak tag is a craft. Or it's just crafty. Like crafty is not such a good term. 
Anyway, let me continue. The next one is by Icon, and it says five stars, and it says, Danny is great. There are great and less than great guests, but Danny LaBelle is always great, episode after episode. And I thank you very much. Creating name 88, whoever wrote that. That one was April 21st, 2019, and that's the most recent one we got. So please jump on there and leave some love, five stars, and a nice comment. And I will read it. I'll read it on the show. People like when you read things that they write, I'll read them. I'll read them out loud like I just did. Because it helps a lot. It helps the show and we need it. We need the boost. All right. Thanks very much for tuning in, everybody. All right. I'll see you next time with another exciting and jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.